taking young love seriously. Chinese-American relationship with China. Complicated intersections of power and identity. Bruce Wayne is actually the person, <laughs> and Batman's the real thing. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world, and we're just using books to stay connected. I'm James Earl, missing San Francisco while living in Milan. And I'm Melissa Hansen, not missing San Francisco since I'm in San Francisco, but definitely missing pork buns right about now. And we're reading Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. And I just want to give a quick spoiler alert. On this podcast, we don't believe in spoilers. So if you have not read Last Night at the Telegraph Club, be prepared for those spoilers. All the spoilers. All right, Melissa, we're going to put 60 seconds on the clock for a quick summary. Okay, I'm prepared. Starting in three, two, one. Okay, so there's this girl named Lily. She's a high school senior. She is um, Chinese-American, um, born and raised in San Francisco, and she is, really likes math and rockets and cool things like that. But she finds it kind of be a little stifling being a woman, being a Chinese woman, being in San Francisco. And also, maybe she kind of likes looking at ladies. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Enter her math class. There's this girl named Kathleen, but she tells her to call her Kath. And they start to strike up a connection and decide that they're going to go to a secret nightclub um, at the Telegraph Club where there are ladies dressing up as men and performing um, old standards. And it is a look at the intersection of queer identity, growing up, communism, and just Figuring out where you belong in the world in the 1950s. Okay, perfect. We have a couple seconds to spare. Woo! I mean, I cut out a lot of the plot. There's also yeah. moments where like, you get to see things from like her mom's perspective and her aunt's perspective. Yeah. You but... definitely didn't give any spoilers either. And now I know it's pretty much... Oh, there will be spoilers. There's yeah. the, the, the police are involved. The government <laughs> is involved. Everyone takes everyone's papers. But oh, it's yeah. the 1950s, so I feel like that's like implied. Yeah. Okay, so let's start with the status quo of this novel. We've got Lily. She's Chinese-American, living in San Francisco. It starts off at a Miss Chinatown pageant, and we get introduced to a lot of the themes of the story there, where she's under a lot of pressure, like this normalizing pressure for some standard of what it means to be a woman, for what it means to be Chinese, for what it means to be American, and is being forced into... They keep on repeating, good Chinese girl. You're a good Chinese girl. Yeah. Good Chinese girl. And that in this context, good Chinese girl sometimes means being a good American Chinese girl, where it means like wearing the heels of the pageant, and it's like the closest you can be to American culture. That's the better you are. But sometimes it means good Chinese girl is in like resisting that pressure to become more American and staying Chinese. And there's a lot going on. Yeah, I feel like um, especially did you read the post log or like where she like wrote all of her notes in the author's notes where she's like, here's my amazing bibliography. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. In the notes section, the author talks about like all of the books and movies that she read to inspire this book. And she talks a little bit about the Miss Chinatown pageant and exactly what you're saying. Like it is originally actually something about buying into that model minority myth of what is a good Chinese girl? A good Chinese girl is an American. (laughs) (laughs) Like Americans do pageants. So we'll do pageants and show you, you know, what it is like for us to like be on the side of the Americans. Obviously, especially in the 1950s, that's like a really rough place to be right after the Japanese internment, right after the Korean War. Now the Chinese are all communists. 
there's just like a lot of things that are like super loaded and the stakes are super high to present yourself as good Chinese American people. And part of that is falling squarely in line with American gender expectations. It's that weird in-between line that women often have to follow with like, you're sexualized, but not for your value. Yeah, I, I thought the pageant was such a brilliant way of starting the novel too, because it, it did like right away introduce us to that like main coercive force of the novel, that thing that like she's struggling with. Like basically the antagonist of this novel is that normalizing force. Like I think there's one way to read it where um, Shirley is the, the thing, but Shirley is just as much a victim of it as she is, except I don't know, Lily's just less of a jerk about it. I got so pissed at Shirley. <laughs> Shirley is is dating a freaking communist who might result in Lily's father being deported. Shirley, keep it in your pants. <laughs> That's all I've got to say. Yeah. At the end, when Shirley doesn't win the Miss Chinatown pageant, I don't know. I think that revealed for me the tragic nature of her character, where like she could sacrifice everything, play all the games, nor would all, all of that stuff, and still just like not be accepted as female enough or American enough or... Miss Chinatown enough. Well, especially like because there are normal like patriarchal standards that holds everything up as well as like, especially in America, capitalism. Like yeah. they said while they were planning the Miss Chinatown pageant, they're like, well, he's like, you're not going to win. It's the people who have money, get the most money from businesses. Yeah. It's ultimately a fundraiser and you have no chance of that because your parents don't have the money. Yeah. The money is just another, another one of the coercive forces that's like forcing them all into certain models that they're not going to be able to, to sustain. And obviously the big one is femininity in this yeah. one. One thing that I, I liked about what this novel did was it, I think what we've been saying so far is a pretty simple thing. It's like, it's, it's almost cliche these days to be like, oh, yep, women are put into these boxes and there are certain cultural expectations that everybody has to meet. And it, this is a novel exploring that. It's like a pretty classic YA theme. But when she sort of enters the unknown world and goes to the Telegraph Club and meets these people who subvert those gender expectations... There were still coercive forces there. Like that culture wasn't free of normalizing certain behaviors. Like I was struck by one scene where Kath is given the label of butch by one of the older women in the in the club. And it's seen as like a badge. Like it was something that she earned. And so there was this like trying to put her in a certain box and like having her meet some sort of standard expectations of what it means to be quote butch. And so, like, they were still there. They were just different. Like, obviously, there was more freedom to find oneself in the club, but it wasn't completely, like, both of her worlds ended up having these normalizing coercive forces. Also, in the author's note, she talks about this as well. <laughs> I just read the author's note. Can you tell? And how, like, in the 1950s, there was something about... I think that often viewing butch femme relationships as, oh, they're just modeling like heteronormativity. Right. It's just like they're taking what they know and just like mimicking it, but just with two women. What the author is trying to argue is like at that stage in time, what they were using to do it was actually to display power mm -hmm. and take power back. And I think that we're lucky that we are no longer sort of in that place. It's kind of like the lean in of mm -hmm. lesbianism, basically, right? Like, we need to have enough women in the boardroom who are leaning in and dealing with bullshit so that we can all be women however it means to be a woman in the workplace. And we need enough lesbian couples to like show power in the sort of like more traditional way in order to like open the doors for other sorts of relationships where there are different gender roles as well. I also thought it was interesting speaking about money and class 
they have mentioned a lot like the contrast between China and the U.S. and how people would have different stations in China versus the U.S., which I thought was really interesting, especially for all of the Chinese people who were stuck in America with the war. And I thought that was also like a really interesting contrast, given also in the author's note, that her family was actually stuck on the other side. Hmm. They were stuck in China, even though her mother was American, like a white American woman. Oh, that's really interesting. And so that also is like this very interesting thing about like Joseph, Lily's father at one point talks about what it would have been like in China. Like they would have been higher class there, Yeah. but they're in the US. Right. And so they're like sticking with a Cantonese side versus like the Shanghai side. I think it, it goes to like lineage, especially in the sense of the Chinese community being so tight knit and where like everyone knows everyone. That includes what is your status against other people, who's poor, who's not. It's just very interesting. Like people plug you in yeah. to different places, just like you were talking about, like plugging into like gender stereotypes and things like that. Right. I mean, Shirley's a character who says it overtly at some point. And again, like I think you can read her as the mouthpiece of some of these coercive forces because she's like the classic toxic friend. But she says this directly at one point where she takes Lily out of Chinatown and is like, I just have to get out of there. Like everybody knows everybody. Everybody's gossiping. I'm just going to give them something to talk about and doing this Miss Chinatown pageant. Her way of reacting to it, I think they're both victims of this normalizing pressure. And one of them just like decides to join what's seen as a subversive community and like undermine it that way. And the other one just goes, you know what, whatever, I'm just going to play the game. I'm going to play the game as well as I can. I'm going to give them something to talk about. I'm going to like do all the things, check all the boxes and that she's still, because of class, prevented from in-group status. You know, they're all looking for in-group status in some way, and Lily finds it outside of the status quo, but in some ways, Shirley's more tragic. Yeah, I was really interested by when the author would give us timeline notes. Yeah. It kept on being this idea of, like, the right of freedom to assembly. Right. Kept coming up. Right. Especially, like, the state of California allowing, like, gay people to congregate wherever you want, but don't do any sexy shit is, like, the line of the law. And it's kind of, like, the same line for communism, where Shirley's like, well, I'm playing the game, but yeah, my boyfriend just hangs out with anyone, but he can hang out with whoever he wants. He's not an actual communist. Right. And it's, like, this freedom of assembly as long as you don't do communist or lesbian things. Yeah, yeah. But what's that line there when ultimately like the government's going to see them the same, even if they protect your rights? Right. Also, the government is not going to see like whatever the authentic thing is. The government's going to see what the reputation of the thing is. Mm-hmm. And so they're not going to see Calvin. If he's not a communist, who knows if he's a communist? But it doesn't matter. And I think that's the point is like we never get confirmation on whether or not those uh, accusations were false or not. Because it doesn't matter. Like, the accusation is going to stick as heavy as proof or confirmation. And it's the same with the sexy stuff. The (laughs) reputation is going to stick just as much as any sort of confirmation of it. Yeah, what did they call them? Deviant homosexuals or something? I mean, the idea of a, a male impersonator, this is not a phrase I'd ever heard before reading this book. Versus, like, crossdresser? I guess. Like, I've just never heard of that phrase. Oh, I think maybe, and I've never seen Victor Victoria. Yeah. (laughs) Because I've seen a lot of posters with Julie Andrews in an all-male costume. I assumed this was a thing. It is interesting, though. You don't see it as much. It's also been interesting because there's been such, especially in recent times, a huge explosion in drag culture. And it's all men as women. And so why is it that the opposite hasn't had the same sort of rise. And is it because the performers themselves are men, and so it is viewed as valuable and producible and things like that versus performers being women? Oh, that's interesting. 
and women presenting as men is them trying to assume some power. Yeah, I'd actually never thought of that that either. I mean, obviously, I think it produces the same sort of gender trouble that Judith Butler talked about when she talks about drag, like this male impersonator culture that I assume is based on historical fact in the 1950s, where the implication here is that Tommy Andrews is the authentic self and that the female version is the performance that's during the day. And moments like that call out how insufficient language is to explain a real human experience because the performance of Tommy Andrews is the authentic person, is like her being her most real. Like that linguistically doesn't make any sense. The performance can't be the authentic thing. There's a breakdown of language there. And in that breakdown of language, that's where there's like the moment of play where you can actually subvert gender expectations because you're calling attention to like how the signifying words don't actually represent the thing that is intended to be signified. And it's there where like creative things can happen in a telegraph club. It's just like how Bruce Wayne is actually the person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Batman's the real thing. Yes, exactly. That, that, that's exactly what Judith Butler meant in Gender Trouble. Uh, she just really got that nuance there of the DC comic book world. I would love to hear her respond to that. I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd watch that interview. I also just watched the Batman trailer, so okay. <laughs> you can see how I spent my morning. <laughs> Reading the author's note, <laughs> watching Batman trailers. I don't know. Is Robert Pattinson going to be any good? I can't tell from the trailer. Anything to stop thinking about World War Dude, III. Dude, the Russians are not looking good in this, nor are they looking good no. now. So a very weird thing to be reading just a couple days after Russia invaded Ukraine. I'm curious why is it that these sorts of performances of men as women versus women as men, like why are men as women more popular? And it makes me also think like, what are the things that have also become popular where people portray something else? And so that immediately makes me think of like minstrel shows and blackface. Mm -hmm. Like what is it about the power class being able to portray themselves as a class of less power. It becomes super duper popular, but the reverse isn't. Yeah, that's a heavy thing to get into. I can think of a lot of other examples of this too, just in terms of like both class and race, in terms of like where fashion comes from often and how people look to, I don't know, like poor urban centers for like what's going to become fashionable in the future. And not just in things like fashion, it happens in terms of like food as well, where like low culture becomes high culture through this like imitation of a thing by people who have power. Yeah, and and also just like small things, like women can wear pants, but men can't wear skirts. Like the threat of losing any of your power. Like if women want to gain power, they actually have to transform themselves into actual men, like Mulan or in Spin the Dawn versus- Right, or in Merchant of Venice. A performance, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about this because I'm teaching the Merchant of Venice right now. And also it's carnival, right? Like we're in the middle of carnival season. And there are these rituals in history of uh, the world turned upside down where role reversal happens both in terms of gender, but also like where kings dress as servants and servants dress as kings. And like when you're dressed like a king, you get to boss people around. And when you're dressed like a man, you get to behave like a man. I think that there's like a couple different ways we could think about these kinds of rituals of role reversal anthropologically one is that they serve as a release valve where like the lower classes or disenfranchised populations get to act as though they're powerful and like there's just more license to do certain things and there's more freedom to do certain things and then the rest of the year 
you know, you go back to acting as yourself, and that means acting in a subordinate role culturally. And then there's another way to think about it, which is, well, all they do is just confirm the hierarchies of the rest of the year. If by doing these role reversals, all you're doing is confirming that those power structures exist normally. And by performing them, you're just saying like, if I perform like a woman and I act like a woman and what that means, then you're confirming that the rest of the time that women are, I don't know. I don't know. Drag is such an interesting thing. And I think this is why Judith Butler uses it in Gender Trouble, because when they perform femininity, they perform it on a stage with all eyeballs on them. And like, it's a position of power. I don't know. They're subverting it in a different way. I don't know if drag is necessarily the same thing as these other rituals of role reversal. I think it goes back to what you're talking about, like Tommy being the real persona. Yeah. Like we went to the party with Tommy. Tommy was still Tommy at their apartment. Yeah. But it's billed as a performance. That's the thing is like, male impersonator but the genuine thing is male like the the genuine persona is male in terms of like males dressing as females and then doing drag and that being more popular it's just really complicated stuff i think also like we as a society like when powerful people play with the common folk on occasional basis like we want a president who can grab a beer with us we also want him to be a billionaire we want to watch Undercover Boss. <laughs> You're like, I mean, Jericho Brown one time liked a tweet of mine and it made my day. Like, <laughs> like Pulitzer Prize winning poet just interacted with me in this really meaningless way. I don't think so. A like is a like. It's not a retweet, <laughs> but he could have just passed it by. Yeah. And so I think there's something interesting, but we want it to be temporary. I think part of the allure is that it is temporary. And Tommy's an interesting character in the novel because Tommy is kept at a distance. I'm gendering Tommy as female because the book does. She. I think I, I think that Tommy identifies as female okay. or as one would because also. In the 1950s, yeah. Yeah, her girlfriend also calls her female. Right. So when we're at Tommy and Lana's house, Lily has to leave before Tommy shows up again. And so like Tommy, the figure, is kept at a distance. So that's the one that's on stage, the one that like was the original calling into the unknown world, was seeing Tommy's picture in a magazine. But that Tommy is kept at a distance and we never like there's never a meaningful relationship formed between them. In fact, their one real interaction between Lily and Tommy was super tense and pretty creepy in the bedroom. I know, especially as Tommy like presenting like in a masculine way, like right. creeping on Lily being like, oh, you're like 16. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she did just let Lily walk away after making some creepy comments, but it wasn't it wasn't so aggressive. I don't know. That was a weird scene. And I think this is maybe where I I don't think that like obviously this is a club where like sexually deviant lesbians are preying on young women to turn them into lesbians. No. But I think exactly to your point in the beginning of our conversation of like them being like, oh, you're such a cute little butch. I can tell like right away. Mm -hmm. There is this idea of you're coming into this community and people are sort of like aggressively putting you into your box in the new community. Yeah, she's the China doll. Mm -hmm. And the, the like repetition of them saying we don't get many Orientals around here is really that's actually the point i was trying to make in the beginning is that when she enters this new world it's not a new world free of those coercive forces like the prejudices still exist the like normalizing put you in a box those things still exist they're just different 
and they are closer to her reality, like they're closer to the type of community that she wants to be in. They're closer to the box, I guess, that she would put herself in, but it's still not quite there. And I thought that was something interesting that this book did, where a lot of times you just make it a cliche thing where there's good, bad, in-group, out-group, and everything is pretty simple. But this one had a lot of overlapping um, and intersectional forces of power that were all coercive in different ways and that to a different extents and with different repercussions. The one plot thread that I was like sad that we never found like conclusion from, we did have the confirmation that there were other like Chinese lesbians out there. Yeah. And I thought we would meet one of yeah. them. I thought she was going to go to like Forbidden City. And find an actual mentor. Yeah. And I was like really actually excited for that. And it never happened, which is probably, the, I don't know, more true to really. Yes. And her dad knew a lesbian. Right, right. We never got to meet any of them. I I think it's probably narratively for the better, even though like the desire for us to see her have a real mentor is real. It's probably narratively better that they just sort of exist hypothetically and that there's something to aspire to because I think part of the thing was that she doesn't have a mentor. Like the world is always going to be trying to put her into these boxes and she's got to figure out a way to do it. This brings us to a different part of the story, like more the ending I don't know. Like, the ending was complicated for me, too, because I I could sympathize with the position of the parents. They are trying to make their way in a world that wants to put them in a box. And Young Love, where, like, the book definitely takes Young Love seriously, but also, like, deportation is serious. And, like, these things, these things are all very serious. And finding a way to triage which things are the most serious and which ones to value and support is not an easy question. And I don't think that there was any easy answers in it. And I'm not even sure where the book wanted our sympathies to lie. No, I actually, it was like, the parents made the right choice for the 1950s. Yeah. And I guess that was confirmed by the ending. Like, it seems like the trajectory is a happy one. Yeah. And I think that her dad, I mean, her mom obviously, like, is in a slightly different position. But I feel like her dad said basically what I think a lot of parents say, even now when their kids come out, which is like, I love you no matter what. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see your life be hard. Yeah. And I have seen a very successful career woman lesbian. She was very successful in her professional life, but she seemed lonely. And I would never wish that for you. Yeah. Like, I want you to have a family and kids. And I think that is like a really hard thing, especially in the 1950s. Like, there's going to be like limitations there in what's possible and how quote unquote happy she can be. Especially in the ending, I thought it was interesting. We get the one year later, which is like nice. Yeah. I still wanted to like encounter Shirley and Shirley's like, I don't know, been deported or something. Sorry, Shirley shouldn't get deported. That's <laughs> that's unfair of me to say. But like she really didn't care that Lily's dad was almost gonna get deported because of her boyfriend. Whatever. Obviously, like Lily and Kath still very much love each other, but both of them are like, we are both right now uniquely positioned as women in masculine fields to make a difference. That's more powerful than them just having a relationship. Like, that's a generational difference that they could make. Yeah. Like, I can be a pilot or I can send someone to the moon. I'm also really sympathetic for the parents who are oppressed because of uh, the way that the government is treating them and the lack of papers and all that kind of stuff that is their situation. And uh, them worrying about themselves, too. So it's not just worrying about their daughter's loneliness. It's also, like, a real threat to them as well if they feel like and whether or not it's true or not but if they feel like that's something that might impact their resident status or their ability to make a living or something like this like that that's real 
I mean, I think it is real. They're going the timeline. They're like, oh, this like Chinese American rocket scientist who was helping the U.S. so well. And they were like, no, 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 no. They're all communists now. Deport him. And they deported him. This completely valuable resource to the U.S. And then he started building rockets for China. Good job, U.S. So another thing that's related to this topic is when she returned to the status quo, like when she leaves Lana's house and goes back to her house, obviously she has a really rough conversation with her mother before this, and then she gets brought back in and the mother's having them all make dinner. I believe it was for the Chinese New Year, right? That was a celebration that was happening. Yeah. And the grandmother's there and they're all trying to be cool with each other. And anytime that like meals appear in literature i tell my students like that's a communion whatever christian communion but like a ritual communion and like think about it as though it's a ritual communion and and think about like who's making the dinner who's honored at the dinner who's eating together where they sit like these these are important things that'll tell you a lot about the community and I found that to be the case here. And it was also interesting, like, because I thought for sure this was going to be like they're making dinner together and that they're going to realize that their shared cultural values are more important than any of the disagreements oh, that they're having. And sweet that, like, summer child. And that was simply not what happened. <laughs> like, instead, she, like, she's. Re- <laughs> Yeah, she does say that, you know, she can prep these vegetables in her sleep and that this is like embedded in her uh, understanding of herself as being able to do this. And then she cuts her finger. That moment for me was really significant because I was like paying attention to it where I was like, if I was teaching this, this would be a moment. And then that happened. And I'm like, oh, man, like this isn't working out. This communion isn't like a return to the status quo where she's going to change things. It's just she is changed and she's unable to change her status quo. And so it's there's even a line where she says like that, that she has this moment of insight that's super enlightening for her. And that moment of insight is simply her two worlds are irreconcilable. Like they cannot exist together. She cannot lie and be true to Kath, but she also can't be with her family and not lie. And so she's just stuck. Like her status quo cannot be transformed. Well, I think that's also why it's interesting when they're driving away and she realizes she's never left the Bay Area before. And she's like, oh my God, this is the world. Yeah, that was really cool. That was a good scene. Right. How much are you stuck because you actually need to like remove yourself completely from the situation? Right. And then see it with more clarity. And that's exactly what happens with her and Kath when they meet each other in the epilogue is like, they're both able to see a bigger picture and, and with more clarity and say like, yes, this thing is real. Yes, it's valuable to us and we want to continue. But also these other things are also mm-hmm. real and we want them to continue. Yeah. Also, they end up with roommates at the end too, where like right. Kath is living with like a bunch of lesbians and yeah. Lily's living with a Chinese girl. Yeah, right. <laughs> so there is still like this interesting like split. We don't confirm if the Chinese girl is straight or gay, but I'm assuming she's straight early straight presenting. But the privilege that Kath has to lean into her identity more as a white woman, mm-hmm. even in like becoming like an airline potential pilot right. versus Lily getting to do remarkable things with the jet propulsion lab, but potentially being back in the closet. I think it's like unclear. Right. And it did also just like make me think, it's just, it's just like the deportation thing is just fucked up. It's It's so fucked up. And I think especially recently, like obviously with like, kids in cages and the deportation things that we've been going through in the U.S. during the past couple of years. It reminds me of like when Trump was like, oh, they're not sending us their good people. They're only sending like the bad hombres. (laughs) And how so much of 
the Chinese who came over, especially around the 50s and earlier, were, were actually people of privilege mm-hmm. were coming over. Like we see that in Lily's family that all of them are like doctors, yeah, doctors or and people who went to college and who like were coming over or they were being sponsored because they're like good Christians. Some of them even still didn't have the right papers. I mean, I've gotten into fights with family members about this, but my grandfather was absolutely a paper son. He did not have legitimate papers to be here in the U.S. <laughs> I can't imagine the fear that he must have had before he served in the war. I mean, I'm also the fear he had serving in the war. <laughs> yeah. Like, to gain his citizenship. No, that's totally true. Like, Kath is not worried about deportation. Like, the number of concerns that Lily has to keep in her head at once... You're just, it's, they're not you're putting the same your life on the line. Yeah, they're just simply not the same as Kath's. Yeah. If Lily got arrested at the club, it's a way different thing than if Kath... Fucked! Right. And so she she can lean into that identity and make changes within, within that culture or for that culture, from within that culture, whereas, yeah, Lily doesn't have that privilege. Yeah, so I think the ending, like... I liked the ending, which is all to say. Like, I felt like it was a wonderful romantic moment, but also acknowledging that the world is big. And there are big places that both of them can go. Yeah, taking young love seriously, but also acknowledging that other things are serious as well. Yeah. And we did get like that when Lily was staying with Lana and Claire, and they were just like talking about all of their heartbreaks. And there's something that's like really sweet and sad about that for Lily, because she's also like, well, what does it mean? Like, well, what does it feel like when you fall in love? But also they're like... Like, girl, they're going to break your heart, and that's going to be okay. Um, Right, when they're like, who is your first love? And, like, the implication that the first love, that there will be a second one when you you phrase it like that, and her just, like, (laughs) looking around, (laughs) doe-eyed. Like, the world is big. There are people that are not just Kath, but it's okay for her to be a great love. Yeah. And I think that the ending especially, like, is nice in contrast to the sexy lady lesbian book that oh, yeah. um, Lily had found, where at the end, all the books, like, end with like, her being taken to an asylum. To an insane asylum. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, I, I, I had that part highlighted for sure. That's the ending that she sees for herself. I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, the normalizing force of these books essentially implying that that's the end of her love story, that that's the direction it's going. But it's not. No. The world is big. Yeah. James, did you ever sneak out of your house in high school? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course. D- did you? I only stuck out of my house once, and it was to see a midnight showing of Pirates of the Caribbean 2. And I felt like, okay. I don't know, I felt both like, oh, I'm such a bad girl, but also like it was kind of thrilling. Yeah, and also... That's not that's not the worst thing. <laughs> it's still a very wholesome thing to do in terms of sneaking out. No, I think those scenes are her coming back home and like stubbing her toe on the bed. Those really resonated with me. Like I, w- I felt like I was there again in that like coming home when I wasn't supposed to be out. So, you know, I had two houses, my mother's house and my dad's house and the split custody thing. So... I definitely could not do this at my mom's house. I couldn't sneak out because the rooms were just too close. And also, my mother is just not somebody I want yelling at me in (laughs) the morning. Which did happen a couple times, but that was because I came home late, not because I snuck out. But at my dad's house, my room was in the basement, so I could use a different door. Really, just nothing would ever be discovered. I went through the garage. So, yeah. I, I see you. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, let's look at these questions. Last time we introduced a new segment to the show where I pulled a random IB question and I lied and they weren't so random. I picked them because I thought they would be good. <laughs> but this time I did not remember to pick one. And so now I've just got a big list and I'm going to read one at random um, okay. in a real way. Throw a dart. And see, see if something interesting comes of this question. Okay, I found one. With specific reference to a work of literature that you've read, including drama if appropriate, compare the effects of an identified or unidentified narrative voice. Okay, I think that the narrative voice in this one was really interesting. It was obviously third-person limited. It followed Lily around, and so it took the shape of Lily's narrative voice. But it's interspersed with some timeline things and some other narrative elements that, that are sort of remove us from Lily. So did you have thoughts on this question in terms of an identified and an unidentified narrative voice? Yeah, I think the things that I found most valuable were the timeline pieces. So you would understand where we were as a society during that time, um, because I think it's really hard to grasp, like, what is the 1950s? Like, I think a lot of things that we think of, like, the 1950s of, like, Elvis Presley and stuff is actually, like, the later 50s. And so just making sure that you're, like, in the right place, especially when it comes to, like, how Chinese people are allowed to associate and not associate, or assembly rather, um, or immigrate or not immigrate into the country, I think was really, really helpful. I struggled a little bit with the mom and aunt sections mm -hmm. of it. Like they didn't happen frequently enough that it made sense to me their value. Like, they gave additional color and I think, especially her aunt sections allowed us to know that this is a trustworthy person when she takes her to Pasadena. Right. But they felt very, they were there to serve like a narrative purpose that was more like about Lily's journey versus like them being their own independent characters, which is what I struggled with. Because I like it when the perspective changes that there's a reason we need to get to know this person. Right. Do, do those chapters serve any purpose outside of characterization? Like, are there any thematic links that are developed there? I don't think that this story was trying to do the the trauma narrative thing of claiming that there's some sort of linear causality between something that happened in the past and then what's happening in the future. Like, I don't, I don't think it was doing that of saying like the reason the mother's behaving like this is because a, B and C like characterization is obviously a purpose in itself. And so it could very reasonably just be to characterize the mother and like give us a sense of the mother as a real person rather than this like obstacle to be overcome or Aunt Judy as not just an advocate or mentor, but like a real person on her own. I don't know. Are there any are there any themes that come from those sections that are that are paralleled and maybe could add like a frame of thinking? I feel like I I mean I think there's like potentially themes. I think they mainly were there just to demonstrate like the history up to that point, especially like Chinese American relationship with China, because Lily doesn't have one. I think there were like just a handful of sections. So like one is like her mom meets her dad who's just like fresh off the boat. Mm -hmm. And, like, they don't speak the same kind of Chinese, so they have to speak English. Mm. They go to that club where they serve chop suey. Yeah. Aunt Judy gets to kiss her husband, which she would never have done in public in China. I feel like that's sort of, like, what it felt like to me is, like, so you understand, like, the broader, like, Chinese part of it. And, like, try to understand, like, the stakes of what Lily has that she isn't aware of. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, when we go to the Telegraph Club, we see a lot of different kinds of uh, LGBTQ people. You know, they have different kinds of labels. They've got different levels of femininity. And then you look at the timeline bits and you see this, it's painting the entire community with one brush and saying, 
this is the box that they're in. And then when we get to look inside the community, we see that they're diverse. And so those chapters that follow the mother of Aunt Judy and so on, what they do is they, in the same way that Lily is constantly confronted with the question of, oh, we don't get that many Orientals around and, and this kind of thing, that community is being painted in, in only one color. And then th these other ones, they don't just characterize Aunt Judy. They don't just characterize the mother. What they do is they characterize the community in Chinatown as diverse and like having lots of experiences and having lots of opinions and being a like really robust, diverse community. Although I think it's interesting, and I can't remember, but I think we only hear perspectives from Chinese women. Did we ever get a perspective that was not a Chinese woman? No, the closest is her father, and we, we do get it through the mother. I think there's something interesting where it does create like a deeper history to the Chinese-American part of her identity, but it doesn't, when we're thinking about intersectionality, it gives um, a language around being a Chinese, being a woman. So straying off the path into the LGBTQIA club scene is actually feels more transgressive almost. It also feels like far more limited. Like we don't actually know like what that looks like. We don't get to hear the perspectives of any of those characters. And so maybe it's also meant to be like, this is Lily's experience as well, is like those people should feel foreign versus being a Chinese woman should feel like something we know by being really deep seated in that, in these perspectives. Yeah, and, and that thematically helps us unpack some of those issues of like being put in a box and the ideas of, in-group status as defined by people who are not part of that group. So they like give us a window into these situations and they, it gives a lot of context for her, as you said, her Chinese identity as she does this thing that's transgressive to that identity. Yeah. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense and that, that makes sense with the, why the narration functions the way that it did and why those timeline things exist because those timeline things function as this like, I don't know, this overview like timelines necessarily simplify things and put things into these boxes and categorize them in a certain way. And then those chapters give context to it. And then the novel itself shows the individual experience of navigating all these complicated intersections of power and identity. I feel like this always happens where current generations complain that like the old generations are like, haven't we like become progressive enough? Haven't we done enough? And you get to see like, her mom is like a nurse, like she's fully employed, she's educated. Her aunt is able to kiss her husband in public, like things are so different and they have so many privileges that the previous generation would not have had. And so you see them like pushing the needle, but everyone's pushing it just like a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then being like, we have enough, that's all you can have, everything else is risky. But to keep moving towards progress, everyone has to do that a little bit more each generation. You become a rocket scientist, <laughs> yeah. Lily. <laughs> yeah. Fly airplanes, Kath. And going from the experiences of the mother and into the daughter and different generations, we've got to talk about what we've decided to read next month. Yes. So I think that we should dig deeper into this. So like, you know, what is that intergenerational legacy that's passed on? But I think that we should like add some elements of thrillingness mm. to it. Mm. Like, for, like, 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 you know how in Firekeeper's Daughter, there was the whole like car chase with elderly people. Like, I need more of that. Let's bring, we need more energy behind <laughs> it. Um, and I just heard from our producer that there's a book that she calls the most thrilling book she's ever read, the most exciting book she's ever read. It's called The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp. It's a great and title. It looks thrilling. Great title. And it's also being made into a movie Ooh. with the, yeah, with the girl from Stranger Things. Oh, woman. She just turned 18. Millie Bobby Brown. Millie Bobby Brown. Okay. 
I hope that everybody will join us next month when we'll be reading The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp. <laughs> Literary Connections is hosted by James Earl and Melissa Hansen. We're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Please contact us there if you've got any recommendations for the next episode. The next next episode. The next next episode. Join us next month when we'll be reading The Girls I've Been by Tess Sharp. See you there. Okay, have we done it? Did we podcast? We podcasted! Okay, cool, we did it. We podcasted again. Episode 11.